Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. It's great to be with you. Today we're actually talking about maybe one of my favorite things to talk about in the Bible, and because it resonates so deeply with me. So just a quick introduction to me. I've been in Norman since I was here as a student. My family is back in the back. There we go. Kinsey's happy to wave. Kinsey and Carter and Heather. And as Kevin mentioned, I've, I've been a member of Wildwood actually since I was a college student, and now I get to serve as one of the elders. So what I want to do today is I want to start in a kind of confusing place, but I think it'll make sense really quickly. I want to ask a question, why do we wear shirts? Specifically, I guess the answer to that's obvious. Why do we wear shirts that look the way that our shirts do? Have you ever thought about this? So here, I have a picture of, of somebody, I, I hope this person isn't in the room and feels self-conscious, but like somebody wearing an OU shirt. So let me ask a question. Why do we wear shirts that have our school name on it or that have a band or words or a particular logo? Why do we do that? Yeah, what do you think? We're proud of it, right? Because if you think about it, how often do you see the clothes that you're wearing? We don't see Yeah, you don't see it, right? Unless you're looking in the mirror. We don't actually see what we're wearing except like when we're putting it on, right? Like you can see what I'm wearing, but I can't see what I'm wearing. So I was asking like, okay, well, why would we put, you know, why would we put text? Why would we put uh, a particular thing on it? And he made the observation because you're proud of it. And so in a way, what we do with shirts is we turn them into billboards. Does that make sense? That they become this way of outwardly projecting a thing to other people and we choose we tend to choose things that we want other people to associate us with right so if I'm somebody who went to OU and I'm proud of that and I want other people to to see my association with OU I might wear an OU shirt okay so that's one thing and once you see it you're like oh that's super interesting we, we do that we turn ourselves into billboards and this is kind of like an insight into who we are let me make a second observation because this is going to tie into what we talk about today. Why am I probably one of the few, is anybody in the room wearing an OU shirt? How many people in the room go to OU? On a normal week, what are the chances that not a single person would be wearing an OU shirt? Not great. If you think about the larger church as a whole, how many people do you think are wearing an OU shirt today? Probably not very many. I might be the only one. So here's the question, why? Because we lost a football game yesterday. That's right. You all get it intuitively, right? You're not wearing your OU shirt right after you lost a game to OSU. I bet, you know, some church in Stillwater, every single person has an OU, OSU shirt on, right? And there is something wildly insightful about the human heart in that simple observation that not only do we use our shirts to try and billboard and try and project to other people something that we want to be associated with, 
But it's deeper than that. We're not just trying to find association with that thing. We're trying to find something else. So we're in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul is going to start in chapter 1. He has some hard things to say to the Galatians because from his perspective, they've heard the gospel, they've heard the good news of Jesus, but other people have come in, they've confused them, and they've turned them away from the gospel. And at the very start of the letter, he just says this. He makes this observation. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's making a really basic observation that's true of all of us at our base level, which is we tend to want to please people and we tend to want to get the approval of other people. And that that instinct in our heart, if unchecked, makes it very difficult and even impossible to really have a relationship with God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, is that instinct, how it leads us away from God, and how Christ answered it for us. So I want to make an important connection before we go any further. That, just like Paul's saying, we seek approval. We look for approval. And that we look for it usually in some way outside of ourselves. Doesn't take long in life to realize that we're not all that special. And this is why we start trying to find identity and approval and acceptance through associating ourselves with other things, right? Like, I'm not wearing a shirt that just says, Mike, you know? I'm wearing a shirt that has an OU on it, or a Thunder logo, or a, a Coldplay, or you know, whatever. Because it doesn't take very long to realize I'm not all that special in and of myself. I want other people to associate me with things that I think are special. And that that's where I'm going to find approval. That's where I'm going to find admiration and respect from other people. So where are the places that we can go to try and find this identity and approval? And the answer is, it's a very long list. In fact, almost anything that you could think of, we can have the tendency to go and try and find approval and identity in that thing. Some examples that I came up with in about three minutes of brainstorming last night. Listen to the list and, and be thinking, which of these resonates with you? It could be our talents. I'm really good at piano, and I want people to know that I'm good at piano. It could be our intelligence. I'm really smart. Or my looks. Or it could be, you know, I have really great character, and I want other people to know that I have really great character. It could be something outside of myself, like my friends. I'm not that special, but I'm, I'm a part of this really cool group of friends, and that, and that gives me identity and approval. It could be my accomplishments, that award I won in high school or last year. It can be family. But people my age, a lot of times, it can be their kids that I find identity and approval through my kids, through their behavior, through their accomplishments. It can be social media, how many followers I have, 
how people perceive me. It can be a sports team, like our football team. It can be through our skills, it can be through how athletic we are, it can be through our politics, and that we have you know, the right political takes. It can be our GPA, it can be our job title. Interestingly, I'm the CEO of a company that I founded, and there is this really consistent thing that happens to CEOs when they stop being a CEO. Can you guess what it is? They totally tank because they found so much of their identity and purpose in that job title that when they walk away from the job title, whether they're fired or they retire or whatever, they don't know what to do with themselves because so much of who they are has been wrapped up in that thing. It can be how much money you have. It can be maybe the person that you're dating. We find identity and approval in, in our, our relationships, our romantic relationships. It can be the fraternity or sorority we're a part of. It can be the possessions that we have. It could be a certain experience that we got to be a part of. Or the fact that we have a great sense of humor. It can be our theology. I read out of the right version of the Bible. I have the right take about you know, what this passage of Scripture says. It can be about what we know. It can be about our popularity. And on and on and on and on. That the reality is we can take almost anything and turn it into a place that we look to to find identity and approval from other people. So I want to give an example from my life. This, as I was thinking about, this is almost a 20 years ago in my life snapshot. So uh, I'm 44, but this is a snapshot that's very relevant because it's, it's right around when I was your age. So in 2003, uh, I was newly married and Bob Stoops had been at OU for a few years and we'd already won one national championship, but in 2003, we had an unbelievable football team. In fact, the team was so good. I mean, I think we beat Texas that year by 50 points. We beat Texas A&M by 77 points. They had to run the clock during the game because it was such a bad beating. And there were a lot of people that talked about the football team as this is probably the best college football team of all time. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of people in Oklahoma that started to get a lot of identity from that football team, right? Funny thing happened, we were undefeated, we went into the Big 12 championship game, Big 12 championship game started out, we scored the first touchdown, like a first drive, here we go, we're gonna destroy Kansas State, the, you know, it's gonna continue, and then Kansas State, from that point on, just absolutely took it to us. We ended up losing that game 35 to seven. It was an absolutely gut-wrenching thing if you had followed the team across the season. So I had been at this point, I would say, a, a believer for about three years. So I was still fairly early on in my faith. And God used this situation actually to teach me something that I, I needed to learn. The next morning, I woke up after, you know, getting destroyed, and there's kind of like, was that a dream? Was that just a bad, you know, like, kind of moment? And you're like, no, that really happened. And you know what my first instinct was? Man, I don't want to go to church today. Do you know why I didn't want to go to church? Because I felt embarrassed. Now, let's, like, take a second and think about the absurdity of that. I don't play football, right? I'm not on the team, 
in spite of the fact that many OU fans wear jerseys like they are on the team to games and stuff, none of us are on the team, right? And yet, I had identified so closely with that thing in my heart that it was embarrassing, like I felt like it would be embarrassing for me to even... And the thing that I think God wanted to teach me through that is that I had had this very, let's call it simplistic idea of sin and things that take me away from God. And, and the thought process had been like, yeah, it's like I don't say these kind of words. I don't do these kind of things to people. You know, I don't steal. I, you know, it was, it was fairly basic. And God used this situation to teach me about the idea of idolatry. And that actually the places that I can go in my heart to try and find identity and to try and seek approval that those can take me just as far away from him as any of the actions that we would typically describe as sin. So I want to talk about the concept of idolatry. If you go throughout the Bible, idolatry is one of the things that goes all the way back to the earliest pages of Scripture. And God is really clear that idolatry is one of the most spiritually devastating things that we can engage in. The problem is, on the pages of the Old Testament, it feels very disconnected from my life, right? Like, okay, show of hands, when was the last time that you gathered up some of your jewelry, uh, ladies, and you melted it, and then you formed it into a golden calf, right? <laughs> if you had raised your hand, we probably would have a different conversation. But yeah, we see some of these examples, the Old Testament, and it's like, okay, that, that doesn't really resonate with me. But Anything we see in the Old Testament is really just a reflection of the heart condition that we're talking about today, which is our hearts tend to wander and look for a thing that they can latch onto for hope, for identity, for purpose, for satisfaction. And in the Old Testament, it was these, you know, often it was these crude little idols that were shaped like an animal or something. And it's easy to think we're so advanced and we're not silly enough to do anything like that. And yes, we do the exact same thing. We just, it just looks a little bit different. I like this definition of idolatry. Idolatry is when we turn a good thing into a God thing. And then it becomes a bad thing, right? That many of our idols are actually something that morally, spiritually is totally fine. But then our heart takes it and tries to turn it into an ultimate thing. And then it goes sideways. Then it becomes a real problem. And, and the point that I want everybody to hear is that our idols almost always flow out of where we look for approval and identity. The things on that list before that, yeah, I can gravitate towards trying to find my identity in my job title, for example. Well, you know what? That's likely to be where my idols are as well. So why are idols so devastating to us spiritually? The first one is that idols turn us away from worshiping God and they turn us towards worshiping something else. If you think about a football stadium and you think about the festivities and the cheers and the, uh, the jubilation, it's really just a big worship service, right? 
and, th and that's okay. It's okay for us to celebrate things in context. The problem, God says, is when we celebrate things as the ultimate thing instead of Him, it becomes a real problem. An example of this from the ministry of Jesus. Jesus runs into someone who we only see referred to as the rich young ruler, right? He has a lot of possessions, a lot of money, and he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, follow the law and the prophets and, you know, love your neighbors yourself. And, and he, he gives him a basic list. And the guy's like, great, I, I'm doing all of that. I've done it since I was really young. And then Jesus says something to him that totally blows him up. He says, yeah, and go ahead and sell all your possessions and follow me. And that passage ends with the words, and he went away sad for he had great possessions. What's the point of that passage? Is the point of that passage that Jesus wants us to not have any money? Or that in order to follow Jesus, we have to give away all of our stuff? No, we know that's not based on other scripture. The point of the passage is Jesus does something that once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's there over and over again. He takes out his finger and he places it right on the idol in this guy's life. And the thing that prevents him from actually really worshiping and following God. And he goes away sad because he's not willing to give that up. The reality is our idols challenge God for supremacy in our heart as the thing that's the most important to us, the thing that we most want to give our affection and our praise to. And there is only room for one. And our idols displace all of the affection, all of the praise that God alone should have. It is impossible to have the kind of relationship we want to have with God while actively holding on to our idols. But there's a second reason. Our idols can't hold the weight of our expectation. How is the OU football idol doing it, holding the weight of expectation that's been placed upon it today? Not very well. And you know what? That's true of every idol. If we went back to the list and we started, I could systematically go through and tell you how every single one of those idols will eventually let us down, will eventually fail to deliver the approval and the satisfaction and the identity that we're looking for in it. What we tend to be as humans is we tend to be these people that are like, okay, I'm going to place all my hopes and dreams on this thing. And then it kind of feels like it's working out and then it, it breaks down, that the weight of it crushes the idol, the weight of what I need it to produce for me. And so I pick up all my hopes and expectations and I put it on something else. And then it doesn't hold up and then I pick it up and I put it somewhere else. And most people spend their entire lives bouncing around from idols, looking for the thing that can hold the weight of the expectation. C.S. Lewis had a sermon titled The Weight of Glory, and this is one of my all-time favorite passages of any sermon. Listen to what he says. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion 
that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this is notion that has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. So he's going to start with just an observation, which is this idea that we want to be happy, you know, and that we want to find things that will give us happiness and, and will make us feel approval and identity. He's like, that's not a bad thing. The Christian faith never says that. But then he goes on and says this. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The observation he makes about you and I that we need to hear today is that if you're not careful, you waste your life trying to find what you're looking for in cheap substitutes, and you never find the reality and the fullness of the real thing. But the problem isn't that we have these strong desires. The problem is that we tend to try and satisfy them in cheap substitutes. How does God answer this condition of our heart? It is not a unique condition going all the way back to Old Testament times. In fact, the Bible would say every person that has ever lived has had this tendency for their heart to look for identity, approval, and satisfaction in things other than God. We do not have the market cornered on that. So God does provide a solution to that. And his answer has a lot to do, not surprisingly, with where we look for identity. That the Bible would say that our desire and our tendency to try and find identity and try and find approval outside of ourselves is right. Like we're right on to want to do that. But where is the most important part? And before we can do this, something has to happen. If you go just a little bit further on in Galatians, probably the most famous verse in Galatians, this is what Paul says. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When Jesus, meet, when Jesus meets with Nicodemus in John 3, he tells him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't really understand what he's talking about. Nicodemus is like, are you saying you have to go back into the womb? And like, I don't get it. What's going on? What Jesus is saying is that every single person that's ever lived has to go through a type of death and then rebirth in their lifetime. When you hear the term born-again Christian, that's where this idea comes from, that we all have to go through a death and brought back to life experience. And this is what Paul is talking about right here. He says, I have died, and that now the person I am and the life that I live is different. 
how is it different? How has Paul's life been transformed? God's solution is that all of the things that we can tend to look for, identity and approval in, that instead we can find that in Jesus. That instead of needing to hold our resume up to other people, that we now have the opportunity to instead hold up the resume of Jesus. A little bit later in Galatians, Paul says this. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We started this with a clothing analogy, right? That I put on my shirt so that when people see it, instead of focusing on me, they see the thing on the shirt and they associate me with that thing. And Paul uses the exact same imagery. He says, for all of those who have said yes to Jesus, it is as if you have put on Jesus and when people see you, when God sees you, he does not see you. He sees Jesus. It's funny, during Halloween, my son was an inflatable T-Rex, and it was one of those costumes that has a little fan, you know, or whatever, and it has like just a little like plastic thing that you look out of. But I was, our community group went to a trick-or-treating thing, and we're all standing around. I'm like, where is Carter? And then I realized he was like literally right next to me because I just could not tell that that was him. He's in this big T-Rex costume, and it was like I, I couldn't even tell who was in it. This is how we are when we're in Christ right? Here's the good news of the gospel, and this is really important that you get this, and that I get this. The good news of the gospel isn't that you have sin in your life, and that sin is disconnecting you from God, and when Jesus died, he paid for that sin, and now all God sees is your good things, and so he wants you. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for you so that you could give up your old identity, you could give up your resume, you could give up trying to be special in and of yourself, and you could put him on. And now, think about this. When God looks at you, he sees no distinction between you and Jesus. All he sees is the person of Jesus. That is the amazing good news of the gospel. They've called this, theologians have over the years, the great exchange. We go to the cross, and we have not a lot to offer, right? We have our failure, and we have our sin, and we have our brokenness, and that's kind of what we have to offer. And that God says, I'll take that, and in return, I'm going to give you some new clothing to wear. I'm going to give you a new identity. And it's the great exchange. It's the best trade you can ever make. But the reality is that this isn't a one-time trade. It is in the sense that when we trust in Christ, we are fully in Christ, God views us as Christ, and that we have eternal life with him. But our hearts will tend to pull back towards the way that we used to do things. And that the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process of living the life that God wants us to live, is when we see our hearts start to stray and start to turn back 
It's to reorient ourselves towards God, towards who we are in Christ, towards our new identity. You know, repentance means to turn. And it's easy for us to think about repentance as like, I'm doing this bad thing and I'm going to turn and I'm not going to do that bad thing anymore. But in a, in a sense, repentance at its most core level is when we feel our heart turning away from finding its satisfaction and its worship in the person of Jesus towards something else. It's stopping and turning back, reorienting ourselves towards him. Three things that are true about you if you have placed your faith in Christ. Here's the first one. You will never be more loved than you are in this instant. You are all at the beginning of your life, hopefully. And you will do awesome things. I believe that. But you'll never be more loved. You can't be. You can't accomplish anything that's going to make God care about you more or make him love you more. Why? Because he isn't seeing you when he looks at you. He sees Jesus. You already have all, all of the love that you could ever possibly want from God. And you know what? You can't lose that either. Just like you can't gain more love, you can't lose the love because it isn't coming from you at all. Here's the second thing. You'll never have more approval than you do right now. The question is how much you are going to live in that. That's the question for every believer. This is what's true, the Bible says. This is what's true about how God views us and how God loves us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to live in that. That's the choice we have to make in our heart. And it leads to the final point, which is, don't waste your life making mud pies. Don't waste your life settling for the cheap substitute of this. All of the love, all the approval that you could ever want, you have it. Saying yes to that, instead of wandering around looking at the cheap substitutes, is what makes the Christian life so transformative and so deeply satisfying. Two questions to talk about at your tables. Here's the first. What is attractive to you about being clothed in Christ? How does that speak to your heart? Second, when you do feel your heart start to worship and long for and make things other than Christ the ultimate, how can you redirect? What does it look like practically to redirect and to turn back towards looking for those things in God?